This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu for more information. Anyone who has popped open a bottle of wine will agree with George Tabor that it is one of the few sounds in the world that bring true joy to the listener. But if the opponents of cork have their way, that sound might fade away, as Tabor, a veteran business journalist and author, explains in his new book, To Cork or Not to Cork. For nearly three centuries, cork has been used to seal virtually every bottle of wine. Since the 1970s, though, that dominance has come under attack by other forms of closure, such as screw caps, plastic seals, or glass stoppers. Wine closures are a $4 billion business worldwide, according to Tabor. Each year, 20 billion closures go into wine bottles, and increasingly they are not corks. What lessons can be learned from this battle for the bottleneck? Knowledge at Wharton asked George Tabor to speak with us about this topic. George, thanks for coming. Very happy to be here. Can you tell us what is cork and why has it been used for so long to close bottles of wine? Cork is one of the most mysterious and, uh, in a lot of ways, wonderful products that nature has made. In fact, in the book, I call it nature's nearly perfect product. Uh, It's very light. Um, uh, That's why it's been used for for fish floats and and buoys. In fact, that was its very first use. Uh, Cork has been used for about 4,000 years, by by my my calculation, and as a, a way to seal wine containers it was used for a thousand years, from 500 BC to 500 AD, and then for a thousand years it wasn't used. As the world went to different things and trade collapsed after the fall of the Roman Empire, and then about 1600 it came back in into use, and it, as you say, has been the monopoly closure for close to 400 years. Throughout history, cork has always been considered almost a magical product. Uh, in the 17th century, 1660 to, to be exact, there was an English scientist by the name of Robert Hooke who was with the, the Royal Society of, of Scientists in, in England. And uh, he had developed a new microscope. And as part of the, the work, he, he went around and he picked up different products, just net day-to-day products, like a piece of shell, and he looked at that under a microscope, and he got a feather, and he looked at a feather under a microscope. And cork was one of the things that he, he also looked at under a microscope. And he cut a piece of, of cork off, and they, when he looked at it, he was absolutely amazed at, at, at the structure that he saw under the microscope. Uh, he saw millions and millions, he calculated, of little things that, that were kind of rectangular boxes and the rectangular boxes reminded him of a monk's cell, the place where a monk prays and sleeps. And so he said, you know, let's, let's call those things cells. And that's the derivation of the word cell as the building block of all living things. It goes back to cork. <laughs> Why has it come under attack now? A uh, couple of things. Uh, first, uh, there was a... And, and this was known back to, into the 1700s. I've been able to, to tra- trace it. There was a, a chemical that nobody understood what exactly it was, but it, it made it fouled certain bodies. It, it tainted the, the certain wines. Uh, it's always been there. Nobody knew what it was really until 1981 when a Swiss uh, researcher discovered it. It's called TCA, and it, it's what in the profession they call corked bottles. Uh, there's a great uh, debate over whether it's 1% of bottles or 10% of bottles that are corked, but there's certainly 
have been traditionally a, a number of bottles that are tainted, which is a disaster for somebody who spends $400 for a bottle of wine, takes the cork out, and ugh, they don't want to drink it. <laughs> <laughs> is there any way to know which bottles of wine were going to be affected? It's or totally which random. Kind of, okay. it's, uh, there's two types of, of cork, that uh, two types of taint. They're very similar, but nobody can, can really uh, identify which one in, in advance. How widespread is this problem, and, and what are some of the alternatives that are coming up? Well, the problem was widespread enough to to cause you know people to to search for alternatives, especially after the first realistic alternative came on the market. Uh, as one of the researchers in the field told me, he, uh, and I thought a very insightful point, he said, you know, you can only identify a problem when somebody comes up with a solution for it. <laughs> they identified the problem in 1981, which was this chemical compound called TCA, or trichloral anisole 246. And that, that's the, the limit of my scientific knowledge. Um, but um, it wasn't, wasn't until about 1990 that a company in Seattle called, with a wonderful name, called Supreme Cork, <laughs> uh, came up with the very first credible alternative. There have been alternatives before, but Supreme Cork uh, produced a plastic cork that got very wide acceptance, especially in, in the British market and then increasingly uh, in other markets. It's a true entrepreneurial company. It was started by a, a guy who uh, had been a, 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 a liberal arts graduate of the University of Washington. His first com- the first company he started was a, made plastic glasses, and the second company he started made plastic uh, hockey helmets. <laughs> and then the third company he started was, uh, was this cork company. You once said that the experience of the cork industry shows that monopoly is bad for consumers, but also for the monopolist. What did you mean, and what lessons could this uh, offer to other industries? I, I think it, it makes monopolists lazy <laughs> and, and not competitive, not keeping up with, with their industry. Because cork was the only source of, of, of sealing bottles, the, the cork industry, which is predominantly in Spain and Portugal, cork is made... Uh, well, it's, it's made in a lot of countries, but it's, it's best made around the Mediterranean from Sardinia to Tunisia, so the, the, just along the coast there of, of the western Mediterranean. Um, the largest cork producer is Portugal. The second largest is Spain. And they had, the, they had a monopoly. It was a very inefficient monopoly. It, they had no quality controls. It was a, it was a backyard uh, garbage, I don't say, a backyard industry. <laughs> um, but they didn't stay up. Uh, they uh, you know, had lousy consumer relations with, with their customers. Uh, they, they were fat and arrogant. It was a true monopolist. Now, is the cork industry fighting back as a result of all these challenges? And uh, is there a dominant <clears throat> company that is sort of uh, taking the lead in that? Yeah, uh, they are absolutely fighting back. They, for a long time, uh, especially once first plastic came on, they tried to dismiss it and saying, "Oh, that's crazy. You know, nobody's going to ever change." But as they started to lose market share, they they definitely started to react. Uh, a new, they're very fortunate that a new generation of leadership came into the largest company and the producer. Uh, well, it, it's it's mainly not. It was, it's something of a producer, but it's really a distributor, and that's where it, it's 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 market share is very important. Is in the distribution of cork around the world. And that company is called Amarin, and um, there was a young. Uh, it's a fourth generation family run firm that was started in, in Oporto. Uh, 
three generations ago. Uh, they got a, a, a new CEO, a member of the family came in. He was in his 30s, and he recognized for the first time that they just couldn't put their head in the in the sand like they were doing before and blaming it on everybody else because the cork salespeople were saying, oh, you know, it's, it's the it's the winemaker's fault because they're putting bad products in, in, in their wine. They're not keeping their cellars clean. You know? So it was everybody's fault except theirs. He, in effect, stepped up the front and said, look, we've got to change. We, we can't continue doing this anymore. And he, he made some very substantial changes. What are some of the major trends in the closure market? Uh, diversification. Uh, I think that's going to be the biggest thing. I think the monopoly has been broken and will never be put back together. Um, there will never be a, a, a time when you will have 100% of the market or 98% of the market uh, in any one closure. I don't think screw caps, although they're coming on very strong right now, will ever be dominant. Uh, I don't think uh, plastic corks, which uh, are also very strong. In fact, the plastic corks have a bigger market share than, than screw caps, although screw caps are growing faster. Uh, cork is losing some of its market share. It's losing a lot fast. And new closures are coming up. Uh, there's already one glass stopper, as it's called, which a lot of people like, and they call it the elegant solution. Uh, and just a couple of days ago, I was talking to a winemaker from Australia, and he's very excited about a second type of glass closure, which he thinks is the, the ultimate uh, solution. Well, one of the things that's very interesting in, in, about your book is that you have these very unusual characters. Uh, was there somebody who held a funeral for the cork <laughs> in New York City? Yes. Could you tell us that yeah. story? <laughs> Randall Graham is a, is the, uh, the, the Peck's bad boy of the wine industry <laughs> because he uh, he's very much an iconoclast and, and he just does things that nobody else would dare do. <laughs> and one of the things he did uh, was he had had a lot of problems with cork, uh, like a lot of winemakers. Uh, he was getting tainted bottles, and he just felt it was it was unacceptable. So we first tried uh, plastic corks, uh, Supreme Cork, in fact. Uh, didn't like it for some other reasons and problems that, that plastic has, and we can go into those later if you, if you want. Um, but then he turned to screw caps as what he thought was the best solution. But he said, you know, I, I, if we're going to come out with this thing, we can't just limp into the market. And his whole staff was telling him, you know, well, let's just try it out in Iowa or something. And he laughed and he said, look it, you know, I can't, you know, that won't tell me anything. You know, in fact, we've got to go nationwide with this um, and we have to, uh, you know, we have to come out with a bang. We've got to create a lot of buzz. And since he was the owner of the company, he bet the company on this thing. Um, and he decided to... to, to uh, Turn all of his, his uh, not all, 90% of his production over to screw caps. And he said, Well, if you're going to come out big, let's hold a funeral for cork. <laughs> and so he rented a place in Grand Central Station. Uh, and they got a hearse th- to bring up this casket, and inside the casket was a dummy made out of cork, and his name was Thierry Bouchon, which, I mean, Randall is, is the world's ultimate punster. He loves puns. And, and not only loves puns, he loves multilingual puns. Well, Thierry Bouchon is a slight variation of the word for corkscrew. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's also a very legitimate French name. Thierry is a, is a normal French name. And Bouchon just means cork. So uh, Thierry Bouchon. And so he thought that was a wonderful name. And he, he got the, one of the le- world's leading wine uh, writers, uh, Jancis Robinson, to, to come to his funeral. And they, they just had a wonderful time. He got a lot of publicity. And, and he is, to this day, a, 
a great advocate, and uh, he's the he's the favorite of of, of the the cork makers. What's your <laughs> excuse own per- me, the screw cap makers, <laughs> not of the cork makers. <laughs> what is your own personal favorite form of closure? I I like the variety. I think it. I think in the end, it will probably come down to which kind of wine uh, a producer makes. Uh, is it meant for aging, for long aging? Is it meant to be drunk fast? Uh, and I think, I think what you're going to be seeing in the future is are winemakers adapting the closure to the wine they're creating, what they what they want to create in the bottle, because the the the, the closures really have a big impact on what. The, the the wine does and and the other thing is to date and this could change to date there is no perfect closure every closure has its weaknesses every closure has its strengths uh, and i think it behooves especially the cork and the, and the screw cap producers to solve their problems so the consumer can be more confident that they're not spending four hundred dollars on a bottle and it's somehow going to be tainted and and they can just pour it down the drain <laughs> Before this book about Cox, you wrote another award-winning book about wine, uh, Judgment of Paris. Is it true that's being made into a movie? Unfortunately, it's being made into two movies. <laughs> There's the authorized version and the unauthorized version. The, uh, the unauthorized version has already uh, ended its uh, its filming, and uh, it's uh, more more fiction than fact. Uh, the, the authorized version, uh, I've been told that the screenwriter is going to have it it finished by uh, December, and it should go into production early next year. So we'll, we'll have to see. But, you know, this has happened in, in Hollywood before. And I know you remember a couple of years ago there were two movies about Truman Capote that came out at the same time. And so, you know, you, you, you can't stop Hollywood. But the, the, the version that is fiction is... Uh, way out there <laughs> it's i mean they they i don't know if you saw the movie sideways but i think they were largely inspired by sideways and they're trying to to one up sideways with some and it's got a it's got a love interest and it's got a sex scene and it's a, wow. it's pure hollywood how do you <laughs> how do you get a, a sex scene into a wine movie <laughs> do you have any control over the the final version no, of the authorized of the authorized version do you have any control um, over that not much i mean okay. i i I looked. I had, somebody had told me about the quote, and so I looked it up on, on Google. The uh, what uh, Ernest Hemingway once said about the relationship between Hollywood and authors. He said that the the, the producer and the and the writer should both get in cars and drive simultaneously to the to the California state highway, state state uh, state border, and then the writer throws the producer the book. And the producer throws the money to the writer, and then they both just get the hell out of there. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> so uh, that, I, was, I haven't done that yet because I haven't got the money from the producer. <laughs> I'm, I'm already planning on uh, uh, not not having high expectations. I well, say. the current book, To Cork or Not to Cork, seems to be doing well, which suggests that it has a, a, an appeal that goes beyond just wine lovers. Um, I hope it it does. Um, I, I wrote it for a, a more general audience. Um, I was a business journal for for most of my career, and you know you can you can take the boy out of journalism, but you can't take journalism out of the boy. And so I think it it probably reflects a, a little more of a, a business tone because I think in a lot of ways this is a business story. I mean, just the um, you know the, the companies that are involved. You're dealing with some of the biggest companies in the world. I mean, Alcan is is now you. It, the, the the largest maker of screw caps was originally owned by Pechine, and then Pechine, of course, has has been sold. Um, Alcoa is in in this game. Um, Amarin makes uh, sells and makes a lot of, but they they uh, produce uh, 
two-thirds of all the screw caps, of all the corks that, that are made. So this is a very big business company. In fact, that's one of the things that's going to make it difficult, I think, for new companies to get into it. Uh, there, People are still in garages trying to come up with new and interesting ways to close a wine bottle. But today, to get the product out into the market, you know, it's, it's a world market. Wine is being made all over the world. You have to market it worldwide. And it really, uh, the large companies like Alcoa and, and Ameren have a, a great advantage because they have you know, economies of scale. Great. Well, George, thanks very much for joining us today. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.